several hundred pages of footnotes on a CD. <laughs> um, just goes everything you always wanted to know and more about what happened during the Kennedy assassination. And he takes on each of the conspiracy theorists and, and debunks them line by line. So that's a, uh, and I can't even claim to have read the entire book. I mean, it's, but he's done a decade's worth of work on that. So that's available as well to people. You know, uh, it's interesting. You and I are sitting here talking uh, within days of the inauguration of President Obama mm -hmm. and a, a new administration. Yes. And there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, bringing back or emphasizing again soft power. Yes. In other words, telling the American story, telling the truth, giving people a sense of, you know, who and what we are as a people. But I would like to think that a real, an important part of that is shooting down or debunking, to use your word, yes. some of the deliberate distortions that are out there. That is, that is an important part of it, but the longer I work in this business, the more I'm convinced that there's a lot more than just the facts involved in, in belief in this area. You can assemble the facts, but whether people believe you or not is another question. And people will find, can find a million in ways, a million and one ways to disbelieve you if they want to disbelieve you. So in, in that regard, having a person like President Obama who is who's got a biography and a manner that in, in inspires trust in large parts of the world, that will go a tremendous way towards not debunking these rumors, you know, line by line, that's not his function, but in increasing the trust of the United States. So when people such as myself, State Department officials talk, we, we, we have some of that reflected patina that, of, of trust, and people will take what we say a little more seriously. So I think a lot of it has to do with emotional responses. Uh, and if people don't want to believe you, they won't believe you, no matter how many facts you have on your side. That's what I've found. Yeah. It's, it's not so much seeing as believing, but believing is seeing. People <laughs> see, what they, see what they already believe. Well, and, I, and I should add that, that that's not, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, I guess, a little. That's, that's a large part of it. But there are a number <clears> of people who are fair-minded and confused by these things. You hear these things, these suspicions, sometimes these conspiracy theorists, they've got nothing else to do with their time. They have amassed seemingly, you know, infinite amount of anomalies and well, what happened to this and why didn't this happen? And if you talk to them logically with facts and debunk some of these things, a lot of people will come around. But there are also a large portion that, uh, you know, they're more emotionally based. You know, one of the things that uh, we have found is that a number of people who, who listen to our spy casts uh, and have given us feedback are, are students, people either in college, graduate level, sure. and in some cases, they're confronted with stories about this, that, and the other thing. With, with some of the time we have here remaining, what might be your guidance to them? In other words, whether, it was, mm. whether it's your own son or daughter sure. or a relative who says, you know, Dad, I hear, you know, I hear about this, and That's AIDS, right. and CIA right. did that, and, right. you know, how do, you know, how do I, how do I uh, reach the ground truth? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I've made the general point that there, our government is not made up of, of malevolent conspirators, uh, but people have to, I suppose, take that on faith. But I think what people can do is simply research for themselves. Now, what I do, if I run into a new allegation, you know, I don't know everything uh, about what's going on in the U.S. government. I research it. And the most powerful tool is one that's available to everybody is simply Internet searches, Google. I mean, if you do, uh, you know, a... Not, I don't know, a, a diligent job of researching these things. You may find a lot of garbage on the Internet. You certainly will. 
but if you if you really research it, uh, you can find a lot of factual material, and it's a question of sifting it. I suppose I I have de developed a feel over the years for what's true and what's not true. You just see so many instances, you you, you get a pretty good sense of what's real and what's not real. Um, but I think if people are fair-minded and simply do the research, they can find out uh, what's real for themselves. They don't have to accept it on, you know, somebody told me this. But a lot of people don't. Uh, they can, but, but they don't. Um, but it's, it's out there. It's available. The information is there. And you can call people. One of the things that I've done, of course, I'm a government official, so I call other government agencies. They'll, they'll take my phone calls. But you can call people if you have a question. I mean, there's, there's no, uh, the greatest research tool in the world uh, before the Internet was the telephone, uh, if, if people use it. Do you find generally, generally, that the American media mm -hmm. is fairly good at sifting out some of these nonsense disinformation campaigns that get leveled at our country? Oh, absolutely. Um, one example was the baby parts campaign. The, um, there was a, a French, as I mentioned, they won this journalism prize in France, a French TV, uh, which is the equivalent, they build themselves as the equivalent of 60 Minutes, and I think they had a relationship with 60 Minutes. Well, they tried to sell this story to 60 Minutes. They called me up. I talked to the woman there. I referred, I said, you know, if you don't believe me, call the people, the experts down at the United Network for Organ Sharing in Virginia that coordinates uh, organ transplants in the United States. And they quickly came to the conclusion that this story, there wasn't, any, there wasn't anything to it. So they dropped it quite quickly. You, I think, the, you know, the American media takes a bad rap in a lot of areas. People complain. Uh, but I found them to be very professional and not to be taken in. Uh, this, and this was the story that was most likely to be taken in. Now, that, that said, there are certain stories where fear predominates, and depleted uranium is one of them. You know, I've come to the, you, I've done a lot of research on depleted uranium and how dangerous it is. It's, uh, depleted uranium is the byproduct of, you have uh, uranium in nature, which is a very low level of radioactivity. They take it and they make it into nuclear fuel by enhancing uh, the radioactivity uh, and what's left over, the spent fuel, uh, this, the byproduct, is depleted uranium. Depl uranium has been depleted of its radioactivity. It's less radioactive than what you find in nature. Now, but you, you try to tell people it's not that dangerous and, you know, nobody believes you because we simply have these associations with the word uranium. If you, if you hear the word uranium, what do you think of? You think of the atomic bomb, Hiroshima, radiation sickness, cancer, birth defects, all these things are immediate associations. And I'm more and more convinced that, you know, we're very logical creatures, but we're also creatures of uh, illogic and, and association. And these associations can trump logic, really, and, and shut information out. So you might see articles on, alarmist articles on um, depleted uranium or subjects like this where people play to the fears. They may not say it's that dangerous, but they'll, uh, they'll give a lot of credence to it. Uh, Todd, let me end this with a, with a uh, softball. Sure. And that is that uh, <clears throat> I was very impressed by a uh, fellow I work with, uh, uh, Director Bob Gates, who was yes. director of the agency, now, now Secretary of Defense, That's right. uh, recently came out and urged uh, the new administration to provide money, more money for uh, for the soft power, if you will, but specifically yes. for the State Department for, to create more foreign service officers. And he uh, made uh, what many consider a very strong appointment in, in uh, uh, 
the new secretary now, uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. Yes. And uh, so my question to you is in talking to a younger person today, is today a good time to join the State Department? I think it is. I mean, um, we've got, you know, the world, the American, if you look at America in the entire post-World War II period, there was this long period of the Cold War, which and I was a part of, and, and it was uh, an exhilarating time. But now is a time when the world is, is imploding. It's, it's becoming closer and closer together in many ways. We're in each other's faces. We're foreign affairs is part of our everyday life, more than it ever was before. And there's really no better career. If you're interested in foreign affairs and different cultures, there's no, more, no better career than the State Department. I'm a civil servant. I stay here and live here in Washington. I don't go overseas except for occasional trips. But foreign service officers lead fascinating careers. And the challenge is to understand a foreign culture, how to explain America to them, how to defend our policies, and how to, how to listen, you know, how to understand what they're saying about us and, and tell the people back in Washington. So I think it's an endlessly fascinating career for foreign service and civil service, and I've certainly found it very rewarding. Okay. Well, Todd Leventhal, you've been an endlessly fascinating interview, and thank, thank you, you so very much for coming well, over today. I really pleasure. enjoyed talking to you. Great. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's hey, everybody. Holly and I are going to take a trip together, but it's really to see all of you. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it. It's our first live show. Our very first live show. I'm terrified and excited and terrified. You're scare-sighted. That's what we like to call it. That works. <laughs> yes. So this show is on the 10th of October, 2015. It is part of New York Super Week. You can get all of the details and buy tickets at NewYorkSuperWeek.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Today's episode, if you uh, happen to look at the title, which is The Pastry War, it sounds like a food episode, but do not get excited because pastries really only factor into the whole equation mildly. But this is kind of interesting because it's one of those episodes where a bunch of significant history events all kind of rub up against each other. Uh, so we're going to talk about Mexico just after the Texas Revolution. We're going to talk a little bit about the French Revolution and the dwindling monarchy of that country. And we are even going to talk about a funeral that's been requested by several listeners over the years. Uh, the one that we recall probably most recently, although I think it's actually been a while, was Tabitha who requested it. So when we get there, you'll know that that was Tabitha and many other people asking for it. So yeah, we're going to talk about the Franco-Mexican Pastry War. We're going to start with a little bit about Mexican independence. In 1821, Mexico gained its independence from Spain, but as a newly independent country, Mexico was really mired in internal conflict for years afterwards. The government and rebel forces were almost constantly at odds with each other, and there was a lot of rioting and street fights and looting. Those were just everyday occurrences. We should also point out that when we say the government... We aren't really talking about a single stable entity during that time. There were constant claims being made for the presidency of the newly independent nation, and the leadership of that nation was just changing over and over and over. 
So one of the main catalysts for this story actually happened in 1828, although the story itself won't take place for some time. But at this point in 1828, uh, Manuel Gomez Pedraza was president of Mexico, at least by election results. Uh, when Pedraza attempted to remove the governor of the state of Mexico, who was Lorenzo de Zavala, from power, Zavala called on his ally, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, for help, and President Pedraza was quickly overthrown. And is, as is often the case during times of political rebellion, major riots erupted. A French-born pastry chef named Romontel had a bakery shop in Tacubaya, which is near Mexico City. Today, it's actually a section of Mexico City, but before the 20th century, it was a separate municipality altogether. And in 1828, the riots that broke out after Zavala seized the presidency, uh, his shop was actually destroyed by street fighting and then looted by Mexican officers. It's not actually clear which side of the rebellion the looters had actually been on, but with his pastry shop ruined, Romontel was put out of business. And we should point out that this one pastry shop was certainly not the only business run by a French national that suffered in the skirmishes that were common in Mexico City at the time. Many businesses were damaged, and many, particularly these French nationals that had kind of flocked there, were left with little recourse in the matter. Monsieur Romontel petitioned for reparations to be paid for his lost business, but the Mexican government denied his claims repeatedly. Finally, after just hitting walls and trying to seek help and compensation for the damages, he turned to his home country of France. And we're going to talk for a minute about the King of France at the time. So King Louis-Philippe was the French monarch at a very precarious time for France. He had been born on October 6th of 1773, and Louis-Philippe was actually a relative of King Louis XVI. But despite his royal blood, he was really a supporter of the revolution. He fought for the French army in the 1790s, but he deserted in less than a year. In 1793, his father was one of the royal class that was executed during the Reign of Terror. And consequently, Louis-Philippe lived in exile from his home country for much of his life. When Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated both times, Louis-Philippe returned to France. And when King Charles X abdicated after the July Revolution of 1830, it left a power vacuum that Louis-Philippe stepped into. He was sworn in as King of France on August 9th, 1830, despite some detractors calling him a usurper to the throne. Those folks who were known as legitimists believed that Charles X's grandson should be the one to become king. Yeah, and just for clarity on our comment about Napoleon being de defeated both times and Louis-Philippe returning to France, he came back after the first time, and then when things got a little dicey, he left again and went to England. And then when Napoleon was defeated again, then Louis-Philippe returned to France uh, and got involved in all of the, the politics. Uh, he was called the Citizen King. He actually took the throne under a revised governing charter that actually limited the power of the monarchy. But he didn't really deliver on his potential to bring class equality and stability to France. He soon began ruling almost as though that limiting charter wasn't in place. He took a really autocratic approach to things. And instead of looking after the interests of the poor and the working class, as everyone had believed he was going to, he instead was known to favor the wealthy in his decisions. Additionally, France hit extremely difficult economic times in the 1830s which only fed the unrest in the country and the distrust of Louis-Philippe. Many attempts were made on his life. 
Yeah, he had like eight assassination attempts, so uh, not wildly popular. But before we get into Louis-Philippe's dealings with Mexico, uh, I would love to pause for just a moment and have a word from one of the sponsors that keeps our show going. So summer, definitely still here at this point. And that probably means you are too busy grilling, hanging out in the sun, doing summery things uh, to do something more maybe boring, like go to the mall and go shopping. The problem is you still need to look nice. And that is why there is Trunk Club. They've taken the hassle out of shopping by shipping you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly and make you look like a million bucks. What you do, you go to trunkclub.com history and you answer some simple questions about your style, your preferences, your size. And then you are assigned an expert stylist who is going to talk to you about exactly what it is that you want from your clothing. And then handpick those clothes curated from the best premium brands that are perfect for you. You pick what you like, and just like that, you get a trunk full of handpicked clothes that arrives at your door, and you only have to pay for the clothes that you keep. You try them on, only keep the ones you want, only pay for what you keep. There's no ongoing subscription, no hidden charges, just great clothes. Right now, their service is completely free, and you can get started at trunkclub.com history. That's trunkclub.com history. While Mexico had been fighting the Texas Revolution, it had needed money, quite a bit of money, and it had borrowed a tidy chunk of that money from France. Lending out the money hadn't exactly made Louis-Philippe very popular with his people, and in early 1838, there had been no repayment on these debts that had been accrued. France's king was fretful under over his country's economic times, and he was growing very irritated about Mexico defaulting on the loans. And so it was at this time, a decade after that pastry shop that we mentioned uh, was looted and destroyed, that Monsieur Remontel, who had owned the pastry shop and had been trying for all those years to get money from the Mexican government, finally was able to speak to the French king about how his business had been collateral damage in Mexico's internal power struggles. Louis-Philippe was sympathetic to Remontel, so sympathetic that French diplomat Antoine-Louis de Fardy asked all French citizens living in Mexico to itemize and invoice all of their goods so that France would be able to clearly assess the damages that had been caused to their property by the ongoing violence. For Monsieur Montel's losses, France added 60,000 pesos to its demand on Mexico to hustle with repayment of those war loans. And in total, France called for 600,000 pesos from Mexico. This was a, a huge sum at the time. And in truth, the shop had actually only been valued at about 1,000 pesos. And this was a shop that was kind of a fancy pants bakery. It, it was definitely not like a, a little small rundown thing. This was in a really nice part of town at the time. Uh, so that 60,000 pesos number is sometimes explained as having been arrived at as the sum that Remontel could have expected from a lifetime of running that shop. But in fact, Mexico just did not have that kind of money at the ready. France also wanted a trade agreement with Mexico. There had been efforts to actually establish one outside of the demand for repayment of these outstanding loans. But now both of these issues were lumped together, perhaps in an effort to use this unpayable debt as a bargaining chip for Mexico to accept the trade terms that France wanted. The demands were tendered officially by diplomat Antoine-Louis de Fadi, and these mandates were issued with a sort of or-else ultimatum, with the threat that France would be satisfied one way or another, implying that there would be potential military action if they didn't agree to the trade. 
The ultimatum was issued on March 21st, 1838. Mexico had until May 15th to comply and make payment. Mexico's Congress had until April 15th to answer these claims and say either we're going to make the payment or we'll deal with a trade situation. Uh, but it was very clear that Mexico had no intention of paying France this overinflated sum that it demanded, and that neither were they terribly interested in agreeing to the terms of this trade agreement. So Defodi, working with the power given him by King Louis-Philippe, called up the military to make good on this or-else portion of the ultimatum. So the day after the due date of Mexico's answer, which would have been April 16th, the French flotilla arrived. Admiral Charles Baudin headed up the French Navy efforts at pressuring Mexico into forking over the loan money and agreeing to this trade agreement. French ships formed a blockade and prevented traffic into and out of Mexican seaports along the Gulf of Mexico, stretching all the way from the Rio Grande to the Yucatan Peninsula. Mexico attempted to circumvent this blockade by having goods shipped instead into Texas ports and then carried overland into the country. Then the United States got involved. As allies to the French and harboring their own issues against Mexico, the United States government offered the USRC Woodbury into the Gulf blockade to aid the French in their efforts to catch smugglers. Yeah, they were kind of both helping with the bigger blockade and keeping an eye on the smuggling that was going into the ports of Texas. And this obstruction fleet mostly French with a few uh, U.S. ships, lurked there in the Gulf, hampering passage to Mexican ports until fall of that same year. So remember, this all started in April. It went on for quite some time. Various attempts at negotiations were made by the French, but the president of Mexico, Anastasio Bustamante, was unwilling to come to an agreement on the matter. And finally, in November, France was simply tired of this passive approach, and they decided that it was time to move more forcefully against Mexico. On November 17th, Defadi met with Mexico's Minister of Foreign Affairs at Jalapa, but that meeting resulted in no progress. Defadi was insistent that if Mexico had not accepted all demands within 10 days, the only possible next steps would be hostile ones. The island fortress of San Juan de Ulua sat as a protective stronghold to keep the port city of Veracruz safe. And on November 27th of 1838, so again, 10 days after that meeting where nothing really happened, France launched a full-scale attack on this fortress. This stronghold had been a key defensive position in Mexican history. It had been in this defensive role since the mid-1500s. So when France attacked it, which made strategic sense because Veracruz was really like their ultimate port city, uh, but when France attacked it, it was perceived, it was not perceived exclusively as a strategic attack to get Veracruz, but also as something of an insult to Mexico's military history. Mexico formally declared war on France just days later. Bustamante called for the conscription of all able-bodied Mexican men. But Mexico did not have the money to put in their, into their military, and San Juan de Ulua was raided with relative ease by the French Navy. They captured almost all of the Mexican Navy and then took command of their fleet within just a few days. So outmanned by the French, Mexico made a rather bold and perhaps surprising choice. They looked to Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana to help. Or more accurately, Santa Ana had heard about these various goings-on and Mexico's struggles and inability to defend themselves against the French, and he volunteered his services. 
Initially, Santa Ana was sent to the fortress outside Veracruz to investigate the damage and make an advisement to the governor. He made his investigation, even as the fortress was being actively shelled, and then he reported back that things were too far gone and that they should just surrender the island to the French. And the governor did so on Santa Ana's advice, but that was a terrible decision. Uh, when President Bustamante heard of this move, he was infuriated, and he had the governor ousted immediately to be replaced with none other than, wait for it, Santa Ana. So we don't know if Santa Ana purposely gave poor advice to the governor in an effort to make potential re-entry into politics for himself. Uh, he was certainly wily enough for such a play, but we really just don't know. He may have thought that the fortress really was lost. Now, it was not long before this that Santa Ana had been utterly disgraced at the Battle of San Jacinto, which, yes, we know today is pronounced San Jacinto in Texas. Sam Houston and the Texas militia, fired up over the fall of the Alamo, were able to defeat Santa Ana's troops, despite being really outnumbered almost two to one. Santa Ana had negotiated his release from the custody of the Texans, by acknowledging Texas's independence. So at this point, he definitely was not seen as a war hero by any means. But even though uh, that final battle had gone poorly, President Bustamante remembered how merciless and driven Santa Ana was capable of being. And he had frankly had it with this French invasion situation. The Mexican government was losing money on the blockade and trying to defend that island fortress had further cost them dearly. And with their navy now in the hands of the enemy, things were looking extremely desperate. Santa Ana put together a makeshift army to deal with the French navy that was occupying Veracruz. He also sent a message to the Admiral Baudin disavowing the surrender of the fortress. The next morning, Santa Ana was awakened to a full-on attack from the French, and he ordered his men to counterattack. True to the reputation that he had before the embarrassment at San Jacinto, he and his men quickly drove the French out of the city and back to the Gulf of Mexico. While chasing after the vanquished French, however, Santa Ana was hit by grape shot fire from a cannon. Some accounts uh, describe it as his horse basically being shot out from under him, uh, and his horse was killed, and one of his legs was gravely wounded. And that leg had to be amputated. Uh, it was initially buried at Santa Ana's Veracruz Hacienda. And apparently the surgery to remove that leg had been done kind of poorly. The surgeon hadn't left enough skin to properly close up around the bone of the remaining portion of Santa Ana's leg. And the skin that was there had to be overstretched when it was stitched closed. And this is said to have left Santa Ana with a great deal of pain for the rest of his life. But even after the French Navy was driven out of Veracruz, the blockade continued, and France and Mexico were with, at war with one another for several more months. But without Santa Ana to lead the troops, Bustamante was forced to enter in negotiations, lest the French do even more damage to his already wounded country. And Great Britain, which was an ally of Mexico, eventually sent a diplomat to help work out a peace agreement. And it was also in the British interests to foster a solution because that blockade was causing them trade troubles as well. Under the guidance of Sir Richard Pakenham, English minister to Mexico, an accord was finally reached. Mexico caved to France's demands and they did agree to pay the full 600,000 pesos that had been demanded at the outset of the conflict over the course of six months. They also made a variety of other uh, agreements that the French had demanded. And so on March 9th of 1839, the French finally withdrew from Mexico. And before we talk about the aftermath of this relatively minor war, we will pause for another word from a sponsor. 
So it's okay to admit that you don't like to do all of the activities involved in creating a fabulous meal. Like after work, if you want to go to the grocery store and get fresh ingredients and then take all that home and make the meal, it just is exhausting. No one's going to judge you. And expensive, unhealthy takeout is really not a better option. It may be super delicious and it saves you the trouble, but it's not so great for you. And that is why Blue Apron is here to save the day. Blue Apron is going to deliver farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your home. And that enables you to create healthy, handcrafted meals without having to go to the grocery store and spend all that time trying to pick out the right things to match a recipe. So for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron is going to send you those fresh ingredients. They're already perfectly proportioned. It makes cooking healthy meals really easy and super fun. That means no trips to the grocery store. You're not going to have waste from unused ingredients lurking in your fridge, possibly gaining sentience. And you're going to learn to cook with these really amazing ingredients that you probably would not pick out on your own. This is a perfect service for date night or cooking with friends. I've said before, we like to have people over and make everything in the box and have like a tapas style meal. They also offer family plans now with kid-friendly ingredients so the whole family can eat well and have fun kind of prepping the meals together. So each of these balanced meals is 500 to 700 calories per serving, but so tasty that you would never guess that. Cooking takes about half an hour. Shipping is flexible and free, and the menus are always new, so you won't get the same meal twice. One of the things that I love about it is that it works around your schedule. I have already said, please do not send me a box the week that I'm on vacation, and that is there for posterity, so I don't forget it before I go out of town. Blue Apron's experts also source only the best seasonal ingredients for some really incredible meals. I am looking forward to Asian-style pork burgers with crunchy slaw. I love Asian, I love pork, I love slaw. All of that together sounds great. Yeah, it's basically got all of the magical ingredients. There is also um, an upcoming menu with eggplant, poblano, and gypsy pepper tostadas that I think my beloved is going to like quite a bit. So, you can cook incredible meals. You'll be blown away by the quality and the freshness. Check out this week's menu and get your first two meals for free by going to blueapron.com slash history. It's our treat. The first two meals are on us when you go to blueapron.com slash history. So in terms of how things played out after the pastry war, Santa Ana came out of that conflict with a boosted image. We're going to talk more on that in just a moment. Uh, But President Bustamante did not have the same luck. His image was quite weakened by the whole ordeal. And again, the the country was already having fiscal problems. Uh, And after he temporarily stepped out of his role as president to deal with a conflict with Guatemala and then resumed his office, uh, he didn't last. He was eventually overthrown by an uprising in 1841. By the way, Santa Ana launched that uprising, and he ended up becoming president of Mexico. And so about Santa Ana. Yeah, the pastry war wound up being a true redemption story for Santa Ana. Even though Mexico ended up agreeing to pay France, his actions had cleared Veracruz of the French Navy men who occupied the city. He was actually a success in this case, and he was very happy to tell everybody so. He was also very quick to point out that he had lost a limb in service to Mexico. Yeah, that apparently was one of those things he would bring up all the time. Uh, So when Santa Ana became president of Mexico again, because as we mentioned, there was a lot of turnover happening, and there were several men that took the leadership role multiple times as various coups happened over and over and back and forth. Uh, But when Santa Ana became president of Mexico in 1842, he exhumed his leg from its resting place at his home. This is the thing that Tabitha asked us to talk about. 
And this leg was given a full military burial with all of the honors one would normally see bestowed upon a fallen soldier. The leg was paraded through Mexico City in a coach like a war hero. Then an elaborate state funeral was mounted with poetry readings, speeches, and cannon fire. The leg was reburied under a cemetery monument. I I have this um, cartoon version of this that plays in my head where people are making these orations about it. It was a good leg. <laughs> it's just such a, a wonderfully odd and funny thing. But the other thing to think about is the fact that political tides turn. And so Santa Ana's leg did not stay in its fancy grave for very long. In 1844, just a couple of years after he became president that for that chunk of time, when public sentiment turned against Santa Ana, dissidents exhumed that leg yet again, so that's its second exhumation, and this time it was not to be given a better place. Instead, it was dragged through the streets of Mexico City on a rope while these people that had dug it up chanted, Death to the Cripple. Santa Ana was exiled from Mexico, but his life was nothing if not cyclical. In 1846, Mexico asked him to once again step in as a military leader in the Mexican-American War. When the United States made a surprise attack on his camp in 1847, the Mexican general fled, but in his haste, he left behind his prosthetic leg, and the Illinois infantry that had mounted the attack took it. So, that means basically Santa Ana lost the same leg twice in battle. <laughs> yes, one was his actual flesh and bone leg, and the other was a cork replacement, but he just couldn't hold on to that one leg. Uh, his captured prosthetic actually toured the United States, and then it went on display at the Illinois State Military Museum. Eventually, it was moved to a display at the Illinois State Capitol, and this has actually been an issue of contention between the U.S. and Mexico for years, as Mexico has asked that the leg be turned over to their government repeatedly. But much as Mexico repeatedly refused that French chef's request for reimbursement, so has Illinois refused pleas to return the leg of the historic general. So as for Francis King Louis-Philippe, he did manage to turn France's finances around for a little while. France entered a depression in 1846, and another up revolutionary uprising followed in 1848. Louis-Philippe abdicated the throne on February 24th, 1848, and he traveled under the name Mr. Smith and fled to England, where he lived until his death on August 26th, 1850. He was the last king of France. And that's the Pastry War, as it's sometimes called, which I think it's a fun name, but it's such a misnomer because it really has very little to do with pastry. Even if uh, you want to focus on Monsieur Remontel and his shop, it kind of seems to me <laughs> that it could have been almost anything at that point, since Louis-Philippe was really itching with some frustration at Mexico already. It could have been almost any other catalyst as well. For all we know, this could be called some other entirely different war, depending on who had given him the information that really finally sparked this this series of demands to be made. So that is the pastry war, though, as it is called normally. It's fascinating. I didn't even realize um, when I started researching it that it was going to end up being the um, the whole Santa Ana thing. I didn't, uh, you know, realize that the dust-up over this pastry shop was so connected to the um, Texas and Mexico conflict and all of that stuff. So it's kind of one of those cool ones where a lot of things come together and kind of cohere. It helps connect the dots, I think, on the timeline of history. And now I have a little bit of listener mail. And speaking of the timeline of history, it actually refers back to an episode that was before Tracy and I's time. But uh, 
the person who wrote this to us is kind of talking about it in the bigger scope of like the cool things that can come out of this podcast, which is so sweet of her. And her name is Holly. So I automatically like her. <laughs> she says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I wanted to send you a postcard from one of the most interesting places I have ever been. And thank everyone that is a part of this podcast for making me aware that it existed. I really enjoyed the podcast and just recently finished listening to every episode, both archived and present. And as I listen, I love to imagine visiting the sites and cities that are subject from week to week. And every host has done such a fabulous job of keeping me intrigued and excited enough to have started a bucket list of places that I would love to see. I live in Kansas City, so visiting most of the places on my list is kind of a dream at this point. Imagine how excited I was when I got to the episode about Cahokia. As soon as Sarah and Dublina mentioned that this mysterious settlement was in Illinois, I abandoned everything that I was doing and jumped on the internet to find out how far it was from Kansas City. I was filled with joy when I discovered it was only four hours from my front door. My family and I had already planned our summer vacation for June, and we had chosen to go to Chicago as our destination this year. The map was telling me that Cahokia was almost directly between Kansas City and Chicago. It was like fate. Visiting the site took my breath away, and I plan on returning in the fall so that I can walk the trails around the mounds in cooler weather. I'm sorry this note is so long, but I wanted to let you know how much this listener enjoys the podcast. And although I know it's exhausting work, uh, the story is just one example of how you've informed and inspired me. Thank you for all you do. I love that. History comes alive. Uh, it's Yay. so cool, and I hope that they had a great time in Chicago. As we know, that is one of my favorite cities. And I think I tweeted the other day that my best friend was at the field, and I was very, very jealous. Uh, so thank you so much, Holly, for sharing that with us. I like when, you know, you follow up on something that you've heard, and it ends up being a really cool experience. Hooray for history! If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history. Pinterest.com slash history and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We have a newish Instagram account, which you can find at history. And if you would like to purchase history goodies, you can do so at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. I feel guilty uh, that today's thing is named the Pastry War, and we didn't really talk about pastry very much. So if you would like to learn about pastries, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Uh, type in the words 10 pastries in the search bar and you will get an article called the 10 most decadent pastries ever conceived it's not exactly a history article but there's lots of delicious things and like i said i feel guilty that we named an episode the pastry war and we don't talk about delicious desserts at all <laughs> so you can also visit us at mistinhistory.com uh, where we have all of those archived episodes that our listener holly talked about and we also have show notes for every episode Tracy and I have worked on. So we do encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Betterment. Get up to six months of automated investing for free and more information when you go to betterment.com slash history. That's betterment.com slash history. Betterment, investing made better. Join me, Julie Douglas, for The Stuff of Life, a soundscaped podcast that explores everything that makes us human. That nothing is too beautiful to happen in life. Look for a new episode every Wednesday in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today's episode is a request from listener Laura and her son. And I don't think she put her son's name in the email. But in truth, it's only sort of a request from them. Uh, Her son asked for the Doolittle raid, which I was game to cover. But really what ended up happening was that as I was researching, I got really excited about Jimmy Doolittle himself uh, because he was pretty amazing. And I certainly had no idea how much he contributed to the field of aviation. So I got really engulfed in that and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so we are going to talk about the Doolittle Raid, but it will definitely be like a an abridged version. We're not going to go into all of the many details. There have been plenty of books written about it. Uh, so don't worry, because if you really want to dig deeper, there is a lot of good stuff out there, including uh, James Doolittle's autobiography, which I really enjoyed and highly recommend. But first, we have to do a little bit of historical housekeeping for context. So that historical housekeeping is the attack on Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, there was a two-hour surprise attack on an American naval base near Honolulu, Hawaii. Japanese fighter pilots just wrought incredible damage on Pearl Harbor, both in terms of human life and lost military assets. By the time this short but extremely brutal attack had ended, more than 2,000 American troops were dead and 1,000 were wounded, and the Japanese pilots had taken out eight battleships, almost a dozen other naval watercraft, and more than 300 airplanes. This is the action that led the United States to enter World War II, which had already been going on for two years. Uh, And at that point, the United States formally declared war on Japan. So keep that in mind. Uh, And now we're going to talk for a little bit about James Doolittle. So he was really the key figure in the Doolittle Raid, uh, and the man it was eventually named after, Jimmy Doolittle. It was also called the Tokyo Raid before it kind of took on the nickname of the Doolittle Raid. Jimmy was born James Harold Doolittle on December 14th of 1896 in California, and his parents were Rose Shepard Doolittle and Frank H. Doolittle. Frank chased gold. It's how he and Rose ended up in California, having moved there from New England in search of wealth. And when Jimmy was four, Frank once again moved the family in search of gold, but this time to Nome, Alaska. After seven years in Alaska, where he got into plenty of scraps with the other local kids, Jimmy was sent back to California by his parents so that he could go to school there. As he moved into his teenage years, he showed some talent in boxing, and he won a state boxing championship while he was in high school. While he considered going pro in the boxing ring, he enrolled at at UCLA instead. And Doolittle was a junior in college when the U.S. entered World War I, and he immediately enlisted as an Army Signal Corps flying cadet. He worked as a flying instructor, and he was never shipped overseas. And once the war was over, he went back and finished his undergraduate degree at University of California, Los Angeles. And then he went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as part of a select military group of enrollees to earn his master's degree and his Ph.D. in aeronautical engineering. Jimmy Doolittle was a legend before the raid because his life was one of those that was really just filled with bravado and extraordinary feats. He worked as a stunt pilot and as a wing walker in the 1920s and 30s, and he went on to work as a test pilot and an aviation engineer. Throughout, he was still part of the United States military. 
He won the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1922 for flying cross-country with just one stop from Pablo Beach, Florida to Rockwell, California over the course of 22 and a half hours in a de Havilland aircraft. It was a flight that had been aborted on his first attempt because as he was taking off, the left wheel of his plane hit a soft sand patch and the plane went off course and actually ended up flipped upside down in the water. And Doolittle was mortally embarrassed by this much publicized flop uh, because there had been a lot of people on hand to witness this takeoff. But he did try again later, and this time he did it with no fanfare or press on hand. His second attempt was rough because a storm came up just as he took flight, but he powered through it. He struggled with sleepiness because after the thunderstorm, things were so placid as he started to get sleepy. But the rain itself was what actually saved him. These raindrops that were hitting his propeller were being whipped back at him and ended up running down his back. The cold trickles of all this water were really annoying, but they also kept him from dozing off. And his award came because with this flight, he had basically proven that it was possible to move an Army Air Corps unit anywhere within the U.S. in less than 24 hours. And this was just one of many awards that he would earn throughout his career in flight. In early 1925, which was the same year that he earned his doctorate, he set a world record for a seaplane of 232 miles an hour in the Schneider Seaplane Race in Baltimore, Maryland. He had fitted an existing racing plane that had been developed cooperatively with the Army and the Navy with pontoons to enter the seaplane race. The day after the race, he took the craft out again and beat his own world record that he had just set, putting it, pushing it up to 245 miles an hour. This turned out to cause some sour grapes. That race had historically been dominated by Navy pilots, so they weren't really thrilled to lose the title to an Army guy who had just decided on a whim that he wanted to fly seaplanes. <laughs> Yeah, he was, you know, kind of one of those people that was extraordinary and that when he set his mind to do something, he was usually shockingly good at it. Uh, Later in 1925, he got permission for a six-month-long leave from his military career, and this was to work as an aircraft demonstrator in South America, showing off the quality and maneuverability of Curtis P-1 Hawk fighters. He headed first to Santiago, Chile in 1926. So he'd gotten the permission in 25, but he actually left in 26. Uh, And there he got in a dogfight competition, like a competition flight, not an actual dogfight, against German ace Ernst von Schoenbeck of the Richthofen Flying Circus. That name rings a bell. It was not actually a circus. It was a World War I German fighter unit, nicknamed for using very colorful airplanes. So Doolittle was going up against really stiff competition, and he managed to win, which might be impressive enough on its own, but there's actually more to the story. Yeah, at the time of this competition, Doolittle was flying with two broken ankles. Uh, He had fallen from a window during a party, attempting to show off that he could do similar swashbuckling stunts to those of screen star Douglas Fairbanks. And if you're wondering, yes, alcohol was involved in this poor decision-making. After the fall, Doolittle had attached his boots to the rudders of his plane so that he could continue to fly and do the job that he had traveled to South America for. And that was the state he was in when he was challenged by this German pilot. I kind of want to look into whether he and Luis Alvarez knew each other. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seems like from our episode on him, which is long ago in the archive at this point, Uh, they probably would have gotten along. I would think so, yes. It sounds like lots of people got along with Jimmy Doolittle. He sounds like a fabulous and fascinating gent to know. 
So uh, after he went back to the United States, the doctors at Walter Reed grounded him and really, really grounded him. He wasn't allowed to do much of anything for six months because flying in casts using the workaround setup that he had figured out had really done serious damage to his legs. But being the man that he was, he did not just sit around doing nothing during that time. And we're going to talk about what he worked on while he was recuperating. But first, let's pause and take a quick break to talk about one of our much-loved sponsors. Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you today by NatureBox.com. This year, you could be making a resolution you can stick to. Snack smarter with NatureBox. You're going to find a range of snacks from healthy to indulgent, and it should be easy for you to do that, and NatureBox makes it so. They partner with growers and producers from around the world to create unique and delicious snacks made with ingredients that you can trust. Choose from more than a hundred seriously delicious options. Right now, I am uh, having a little personal eater's romance with the sweet blueberry almonds. They are just so good. <laughs> the, uh, some of the things I'm really excited about this month, new this month, are like, they're like little portions of meal foods instead of snack foods. There's a mac and cheese with veggies, and there's a quinoa and couscous with summer veggies, and I'm super intrigued by that. <laughs> you can also rest assured that no matter what you pick, it is going to be made with zero artificial nonsense. You just tell them what you like. If you like spicy food, sweet food, if you're vegan, if you are, if you stay away from GMOs, and their algorithm will figure out the best personalized recommendations for you based on your preferences. And you're never going to get bored with your NatureBox snacks because they add new options every single month for you to discover and enjoy. And the best part is all of this deliciousness lands right at your door. Super easy, super convenient. So no matter what your New Year goals are, or if you just love snacking, you can snack confidently with NatureBox. Visit naturebox.com history and get 50% off your first box now. Head to naturebox.com history right now and just set up a lifetime of snacking success. Uh, one last time, that is naturebox.com history for 50% off your first box of delicious, high-quality snacks sent directly to your doorstep. So instead of sitting idle while on forced rest, Doolittle used his convalescence to return to the subject uh, that he had written his dissertation on, which was pilots blacking out during extreme maneuvers. And he started to think specifically about stunt flying and blackouts. So prior to this time, and I really feel compelled to mention that at this point, flying planes had only been happening for a little more than two decades. Uh, this was the mid-20s, and the Wright brothers and their Kill Devil Hills adventures we're in the early 1900s, so it's a really tight time frame. So he was thinking about stunt flying and the fact that only inside loops had been performed in flight up to this point, and an outside loop was considered too dangerous. So if you don't know what those are, an inside loop, if you were to draw a picture on a piece of paper of a plane doing a loop, like a loop-de-loop, -loop, an inside loop, the pilot would always be inside the circle. Like that's where the cockpit is always facing up into the circle. Whereas an outside loop, the pilot would be on the outside of the plane or on the outside of the circle facing outward. He was really fascinated by the idea of an outside loop. And he took advantage of this forced downtime at Walter Reed to speak with other pilots who were being treated there and get their thoughts on outside loops. He pondered the idea from an engineering standpoint trying to figure out just what might happen to the human body during that kind of a stunt. So, of course, the minute he was cleared to fly again, he started testing out his ideas. He ran various partial loop tests before becoming the first known pilot to successfully complete an outside loop in 1927. Never one to rest on his laurels, clearly. 
He continued to do some innovative and adventurous things. And two years later, on September 29th of 1929, Jimmy Doolittle made the first blind flight using instruments only in Nassau County in New York. Prior to that, pilots were depending on visuals a great deal, on what they could actually see out the cockpit window. But he had developed a beacon system to give pilots a sense of location when no visuals were possible. And with that, he basically kicked off the development of the modern cockpit. He also received the Daniel Guggenheim Medal for Advancing Aeronautics and the Harmon Trophy for Outstanding Aviation as well for having done this amazing thing. The following year, which was 1930, Jimmy Doolittle retired from active duty with the Army Air Corps. He spent the next decade taking home trophies for winning speed races and working at Shell Oil while the company developed high-octane fuel that would eventually become the standard for military aircraft. After 10 years away from the military, James Doolittle was recalled for active duty in 1940 after Hitler invaded Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland, Belgium, and France. He was 43 at the time, and he was tasked with fulfilling the Army Air Corps' need to produce 50,000 planes each year rather than the 2,000 that they had been producing. Because even though the U.S. at this point had not joined the war, they wanted to be ready. Working with Detroit car manufacturers, despite neither the auto industry nor the Army being particularly keen on that kind of partnership, Doolittle was able to succeed in this mandate. By the end of 1941, Ford was producing the consolidated B-24 bomber. But even though this was really a huge feather in his cap and he had performed above and beyond what had been expected or hoped for, Doolittle was pretty miserable. (laughs) He just didn't like this. He didn't like a desk job and he wanted to return to really active duty. And he made requests for a transfer to go to a combat unit through all of the appropriate channels, but he basically got turned down every time and got constant resistance. But then, finally, in January of 1942... He received a call and was tasked with a secret mission. And his job was to plan and execute an air raid against Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor that we talked about at the top of the show and the events that came after it set the United States on edge. In the Pacific, U.S. troops did not fare well against the Japanese, and things weren't really going well in Europe either. Something had to be done to neutralize Japan's forces if the United States was going to make any headway in the Pacific. After several months of planning, Doolittle and his men were ready. On April 18th of 1942, 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers with a total of 80 volunteer crewmen launched from the aircraft carrier Hornet. Their flight began 620 miles away from Japan, and the original plan had called for a takeoff from the Hornet at approximately 400 miles from Japan's coast. But because a fishing boat spotted the carrier, things had to be revised at the last minute because their uh, position had been called in. The B-25s had been fitted with extra fuel tanks, which meant that they lost armament in the process. Because the airplanes weren't originally intended to take off from an aircraft carrier, there also had to be really significant changes in the takeoff procedure. Pilots were trained to take off not at the usual 90 miles an hour, but at 60 miles per hour. You know a lot about how planes take off. Speed is essential. This is tricky. They also had a lot less runway than would normally be available. Aboard each B-25 were five men. The pilot, the co-pilot, a bombardier, a navigator, and a gunner. And as a personal side note, 
the practice runs for these takeoffs were performed in an auxiliary field to Eglin Field in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, which is where my dad was stationed for a really long time. Uh, so I know that area well. Uh, the teams flew low on their approach. They were about 200 feet over the water. And as they reached the Japanese coastline, they dropped very low, some of them coming in just a few dozen feet above the ground, and they made their way to their intended targets, which were military and industrial sites in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, Nagoya, and Osaka. And as they rose into the air to about 1,200 feet over their targets, they dropped their bombs. And then they headed to airfields on the Chinese mainland to land. The wrap-up of this mission, which was basically successful didn't go as planned we're going to talk about exactly what happened right after we pause for another brief word from one of our sponsors you and i have both made our own websites using squarespace that is correct and we both found it extremely easy and painless that is also correct (laughs) Uh, and for my part it was possibly the most easy and painless thing so far about planning my wedding it was super easy super intuitive i basically did all of it while sitting with my laptop, uh, on my bed, in my pajamas, got something in a couple hours that looked exactly like I wanted. With all the things that I wanted to have on it, makes it extremely easy for the parts that I want to be just for invited guests, to be password protected for our guests, and the parts that I'm comfortable being public out there for the whole world to see. All of that extremely easy with Squarespace. You don't have to have coding knowledge, you don't have to know a lot about the elements of design, Squarespace has easy-to-use, beautiful templates that give you professional results regardless of what your experience level is. It is awesome. So with Squarespace, you can make a website that looks professionally designed regardless of what your skill level is. All the tools are really intuitive and easy to use, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year, which I did. Uh, Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. You should. So, going back to the Doolittle Raid, while this raid had the intended effect of scaring Japan and undermining their confidence, it really took its toll on Doolittle's team. The planes did not make it to the emergency airfields that they had been planned to land at. Because of their very early takeoff, they were all running out of fuel. And to make matters worse, a nasty bit of weather was moving in. Doolittle described in his autobiography actually seeing sharks in the water below as they were flying and thinking that that would be an absolutely terrible place to bail out. And eventually they got a little bit of tailwind and they were able to get a little bit closer to their intended mark. Every one of the B-25s used in the raid was lost. The soldiers in them had to bail out over China. Three crews successfully crashed, landed in China, and made their way to safety. But there were also a number of casualties. Uh, Before we go on, I want to have a brief side note on terminology. So my understanding about the word soldier is that it is usually used for army, whereas Air Force would normally be called airmen. And you could make the argument that these guys should be considered airmen because they were in the uh, Army Air Corps before the Air Force was founded. But just for the sake of simplicity, we're sticking with soldiers here. So if you are an airman, please don't be offended. (laughs) I'm I'm not trying to, you know, do any dicey uh, misnomering, but, you know, we're in that, that weird phase where it's the Air Force doesn't exist yet. So that's the scoop. Uh, One soldier died during the bailout, and while swimming across a lake to evade Japanese occupation forces, two men drowned. 
eight men were captured, and of those, three of them were executed. Another of the remaining five died of starvation while in custody of the Japanese. One plane landed in the Soviet Union where their bomber was taken and the crew was interned. The Soviets eventually moved them to another location near the Iranian border and managed to bribe someone to smuggle them across the border to the British consulate. According to Soviet documents that were later declassified, this entire smuggling operation was actually the work of Soviet authorities. They wanted to move the United States soldiers out of the Soviet Union, but they couldn't violate the neutrality pact they had with Japan in order to do it. In fact, the United States military had originally tried to work out a deal with the Soviet Union to land there after the raid rather than in China. But again, because of the relationship they had with Japan, the request to do that had been denied. And as for Doolittle's immediate crew on his plane, after parachuting into China, they were assisted by American uh, by an American missionary and uh, both Chinese military people and civilians, and they were able to get home. There's actually some very wacky stories in Doolittle's book about him convincing some of the Chinese people he was encountering that, yes, he was an American soldier uh, and he was who he said he was. But... Uh, Doolittle thought when he got home, he was actually going to face a court-martial for losing all the aircraft. He would later write, quote, I sat down beside a wing and I looked at the thousands of pieces of shattered metal that had once been a beautiful airplane. I felt lower than a frog's posterior. This was my first combat mission. I had planned it from the beginning and led it. I was sure it was my last. As far as I was concerned, it was a failure, and I felt there could be no future for me in uniform. He was happy, though, about his parachute landing. He had some real concerns about his ankles being injured again, because, I mean, even though a parachute slows your fall down, you still land pretty hard, and his ankles had previously been broken. Uh, fortunately, slash, I was going to say but unfortunately, but it's all fortunate, he wound up landing in manure, which is not ideal, but is better than re-breaking his ankles. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he was very thankful to be smelly for a little while rather than have to be in casts again. So the Doolittle Raid had two immediate effects. First, it was a huge morale boost for U.S. troops, civilians at home, and the Allies. And second, as we mentioned earlier, it really sent a shockwave through the Japanese military. The thought in Japan up to this point had been that the U.S. lacked real firepower in the Pacific, since so many vessels and planes had been destroyed at Pearl Harbor, and so many other assets were already deployed in Europe. As Doolittle wrote in his autobiography, quote, the bombs could only do a fraction of the damage the Japanese had inflicted on us at Pearl Harbor, but the primary purpose of the raid against the main island of Japan was psychological. And immediately, the Japanese forces scrambled to fortify their defenses in the Pacific. Their carrier fleet in the Indian Ocean was called home to protect the islands of Japan. Aircraft that had been spread throughout the South Pacific by Japan were all recalled to patrols at home to defend against another possible attack from U.S. bombers. This shift of Japan's military assets back to the Japanese islands, along with United States victories at the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942 and the Battle of Midway in June of that year, enabled the United States to launch a, a campaign against Japan at Guadalcanal in August of 1942. This would have been impossible before the Japanese defensive stand in the Pacific had been crippled. And immediately after the raid, of course, Doolittle was not court-martialed, as he expected, and he was instead promoted. He had been a lieutenant colonel when he led the raid, but the very next day he was made a brigadier general, skipping over the rank of full colonel completely. 
Doolittle was also awarded the Medal of Honor for his efforts, an honor he was given a month after the raid. The citation stated the reason for his award simply and clearly and put into perspective just how dangerous the Doolittle raid had been. It read, quote, With the apparent certainty of being forced to land in en enemy territory or to perish at sea, Colonel Doolittle personally led a squadron of army bombers manned by volunteer crews in a highly destructive raid on the Japanese mainland. Doolittle would go on to command the Strategic Air Forces, the 12th Air Force in Britain, and the 15th Air Force in North Africa and Italy. He later commanded the 8th Air Force, which was instrumental in forcing Nazi surrender at the end of World War II. And after the war, James Doolittle returned to work at Shell Oil. He was eventually named the president of the Institute of Aeronautical Science, and he served on the president's scientific advisory committee. In 1983, Doolittle was made the 25th recipient of the United States Military Academy's Sylvanus Thayer Award given for Distinguished Military Service. Doolittle died on September 27th of 1993 at Pebble Beach, California at the age of 96. He had had a stroke earlier in September and he spent his last several weeks in his son's home before he passed. And I, I'm so awed by his life. And what I really love, one of the things that came up when I was researching this uh, was that at one point somebody had referred to him as the Da Vinci of flight. And he said, I think they mean more like I'm the Rube Goldberg. That's not the direct <laughs> quote, but it was kind of like that. Like he was just like, no, I'm just, I'm, d I'm just busy trying stuff. That's <laughs> awesome. Which I sort of loved. It was so uh, sort of humble and wonderful and witty at the same time. Uh, so that is the story of James Doolittle and the Doolittle Raid. Uh, you also have listener mail? I do. This one uh, made me laugh so hard that Tracy knew immediately that it was going to be read on the air. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> it, it's such a great email that it came in on a weekend and I happened to read it on the weekend and we had brunch and I was telling the people at brunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. So this is from our listener, Ben. He says, Dear Holly and Tracy, in the Courier Mine Disaster episode, Holly asked why they thought it was the coal dust and not the methane from the horses that caused the explosion. Uh, yeah, I wasn't clear. I mean, there was obviously coal dust that was a problem, but I didn't understand why they had always been rated so clean in terms of uh, fire damp, like the mine gases, when they had horses that were underground making methane. And Ben says, I was intrigued by this question, so I decided to finally put my engineering degree to good use, calculating horse farts. The Courier mine disaster extended along 110 kilometers of tunnels, and assuming the tunnels are two meters wide and tall, that gives us a volume of 440,000 cubic meters. A mixture of air and methane is only flammable if it is at least 5% methane, so the horses needed to make 22,000 cubic meters of methane. A single horse produces roughly 32 cubic meters of methane per year, so you would need around 690 horses farting for an entire year to make the mine flammable. At this point, you might think this is possible. 690 horses might be reasonable for a large mine. However, the methane could only build up to dangerous levels if there was no ventilation. If the ventilation in the mine was removed, the oxygen in the mine could only support those horses for three months at most, and that's with no people also breathing the oxygen. So an airtight mine would be a really bad idea. But, as you mentioned, the mine was actually ventilated, sending all those horse farts out into the French countryside. <laughs> 
As cool as horse farts are, the coal dust was the more likely culprit. Yours in flatulence, Ben. He, he gives a PS that he's sorry for using metric. Uh, don't be sorry. This is the most brilliant piece of writing. Extremely maybe ever. Brilliant. I want to give some sort of award to Ben for this. I am, could not be more delighted by this email. So now we know about the math of horse farts. Thank you so much, Ben. That was just spectacular. <laughs> if you would like to write to us with your mathematics of flatulence or anything else, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at history. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parents' parent site, How Stuff Works. If you do a search for the Doolittle Raid, uh, the one of the things that comes up is the North American B-25 Mitchell bomber. So you'll get a little more information on the planes that they were actually taking out into this raid. Uh, if you would like to visit us, you can do that at mistinhistory.com, where you can look at show notes for all of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as an archive of every episode of the podcast there has ever been. So we encourage you to come and visit us at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Keith Melton. Keith Melton has been a member of our board since the founding of the museum. In fact, uh, Keith was one of the uh, resources, our, our prime resources, in knowing both what we wanted to display at the museum as, as well as acquiring the uh, materials that we did, the artifacts that we have. Uh, Keith does have the largest private collection in the world of espionage artifacts, spycraft items, and uh, we at the museum have really relied on Keith through the years, uh, often with determining the nature of a new artifact or uh, whether it was worth displaying or how to display it, in fact. Keith is a historian of intelligence literature, a commentator. He has done a number of TV specials. <clears throat> he has written a number of books, perhaps one of the best known, uh, which is very popular here at the museum, is The Ultimate Spy, and another book that he has been working on with uh, Bob Wallace, the, the Q, if you will, of CIA, uh, will it be a book that will be coming out next May called Spycraft. Keith is joining us today for a very specific reason, and that is he is uh, doing a presentation at the museum today, this evening, on the subject of Trotsky. Trotsky figures in many people's minds as one of the people assassinated by or ordered to be assassinated by Stalin uh, in Mexico City. The, the subject of Trotsky appears in many novels and movies and references, but you find on talking to people, and I find in looking at my own memory, most of us really don't know much beyond that. And uh, Keith has devoted himself in the last uh, year or so to doing more intensive research on Trotsky and developing the Trotsky story. And that's what he's here to talk about today. Keith, welcome. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Let me ask you, and I think this would be very helpful our, uh, to our readers, who was Trotsky? Leon Trotsky was an intellectual giant of his era. 
and certainly along with Lenin, the intellectual father of the Russian Revolution. And he was the founder of Pravda, the internationally known propaganda newspaper. He was the architect of the Red Army. He was the first commissar for military and naval affairs, and later the commissar for foreign affairs. He was Stalin's ultimate rival, and both could not succeed Lenin, and it was this fact that made his fate inevitable. Of course, when we speak of rival uh, here in, in the United States of the 21st century, we think of political rivals and elections and, and uh, sort of the orderly transition of government. That was not the case then, was it? Well, it it's fascinating that uh, we think in our, in our systems that ultimately intellect and fairness will triumph. Well, Stalin proved that even an intellectual giant can be toppled without, uh, if he's not aware of the ruthless nature of his opponents. And where Trotsky was smarter, Stalin was far more clever. And Stalin essentially was a minor figure during the Russian Revolution, but rose quickly to power through establishing and understanding the power of a bureaucracy. And he recognized that if he could be in the position to appoint the numerous mid-level servants that served this burgeoning Russian revolution in the new Soviet Union, that ultimately there was power in controlling the infrastructure. And where Trotsky had once been offered to become the secretary of the Communist Party, he declined because he wanted to spend his times writing. He believed in a permanent state of revolution where Stalin realized tactically if you, can, if you control the body of the apparatus, ultimately the mind will succumb to the body's will. And so Stalin was in the position to appoint the key individuals and people that control the infrastructure and eventually he outmaneuvered Trotsky so that when Lenin died, ultimately, Trotsky was on vacation. Lenin sent him a telegram and said, there's not time. You stay where you are on vacation. There's no need to even return to Moscow. And then ultimately used Trotsky's absence to discredit him in public opinion. The, the other hallmark of Stalin, of course, uh, at least as we know through history, recent history, is that he was ruthless. Uh, perhaps far more so than, than we can even imagine. Stalin was tactically brilliant. He was, he, he, no one ever referred to his intellect, but certainly people remember his cleverness. And he's often noted for stating that if you want to eliminate someone, don't attack the head eliminate all of their support apparatus so that eventually when you do take action there's no way that they can have a reprisal against you and he prized himself on the on the strategic use of tac strategic use of force understanding when an opponent was vulnerable and when they could be eliminated but given that given his tactics his understanding of, of of bureaucracies and force and eliminating an opponent why did he, and I, I assume that it was he, order and of course carry out the assassination of Trotsky? Well, he recognized very early that upon Lenin's death there would only be room for one successor. So his maneuvering probably began as early as 1923 to outmaneuver Trotsky. 
Trotsky eventually, when he was discredited for not returning to Moscow for the funeral of Lenin, ultimately was sent into exile in 1928, and by 1929 was officially banned from the Communist Party, and by 1932 lost his citizenship. So beginning in 1928 in Central Asia, Stalin began his life escaping from... uh, Beginning in 1928, Trotsky began his life escaping from Stalin. And if you look at the use of murder, Trotsky ultimately feared Stalin because, number one, Trotsky knew too much, and he knew how shallow Stalin's contributions had been in truly the revolution. And he recognized that if he continued to talk about this, if he discredited Stalin, ultimately he believed his writings, this permanent revolution, could be the beginning of something called the Fourth International, which in effect the the Socialist Workers Party that he founded in 1938. And though it was a dream to Stalin, it it was truly a threat. And beginning as early as 1933, we know in writings now in the uh, Soviet intelligence that there was early work on how they might eliminate Trotsky. Because originally he went to Central Asia, from there to an island off the Turkish coast, then into a secret exile in Norway, then to a very public resort in the south of France. Then he made in 1937 this giant leap when he appeared in Mexico City at the personal invitation of President Cardenas, which had been arranged by two very famous painters, Diego Rivera, the muralist, and his pupil and wife, Frida Kahlo. So this was a giant leap, but as Europe was on the the precipice of war, it also recognized a, a unique threat because Trotsky was publicly attacking the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Germans, posed a threat. And so Stalin feared, would they be perhaps a linkage between Trotsky and the Germans? And ultimately, his vanity required that Trotsky be eliminated. But was there, there must have been a sense on the part of Trotsky that he was um, safe in the sense that he was, he was so prominent, he was a celebrity of sorts, and he was in the company of many prominent leftists and, and in a country that was sympathetic to, to the uh, the, the left generally, and the communists in particular. So I would have thought that one of the reasons for his move to Mexico a City, where he was a public figure, really, was that uh, a sense of security. If you look back at the writings of, of Trotsky and his, his staff, they never had a night's rest that they were not fearful from the moment they left the Soviet Union. Because even though he was in exile, he saw all of those around him dying. Uh, he lost his secretaries, Rudolf Clements, Erwin Wolf were both assassinated. His son, Leon Sadoff, died under circumstances that are still felt to be an assassination in Paris. Key members of his family were dying. He was warned on multiple occasions by former colleagues that had themselves escaped the Soviet Union in advance of the purges, that his compound was penetrated, his entourage had GPU agents in, and that ultimately he was going to be the target of an assassination. Uh, 
the the saying that he would wake up each morning and say to his wife Natalia is one more day we've succeeded in outliving Stalin by one more day Keith tell us about the assassin well the assassin is a fascinating figure his name we know now was Ramon Mercader he was operating under a Belgian covered by the name of Jacques Monard and he was born in 1914 he was the wife of a Catalonian Spanish family a beautiful mother Caradad Mercader she him herself had been embroiled in the, the passionate politics of the left in, in Spain and France in the 1930s and had been early supporters of the Spanish Civil War. They had fought passionately against the government. And her son was first a lieutenant and then finally became a major and a political commissar. He was wounded, she was wounded. And while she was in the hospital during the war, she met a man named Leonoid Eitingen. And Eitingen is a giant in the history of Soviet intelligence. And he was running Soviet intelligence operations in the Spanish Civil War. And he met and began a love affair with this beautiful Caridad Mercader while she was recovering in the hospital. And there recruited her into Russian intelligence and her son. And in 1937, both of them traveled to Moscow, where he underwent extensive sabotage and assassination training just to be ready in case. And it was this relationship that would ultimately be in place and under his direct control up to and including the assassination. But what's interesting and, and somewhat a, a hallmark of Russian intelligence operations was that the original recruitment was not necessarily pinpointing him as an assassin. It is my belief that he was originally merely there as a potential source to get close to Trotsky, gather intelligence, and to be there if and in case he was needed. And, and that's in effect what happened. So, in other words, you're saying the original, the original of the uh, uh, purpose of recruiting him and training him was to move him close to Trotsky, that is, uh, given his language capabilities. I mean, what, I, I take it he was not in Mexico at the time. He was trained in Moscow. He was brought to Moscow, trained, and then dispatched, but not with the idea of assassination initially. Is that what you're it, saying? Uh, the, 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 the levels of the plot extend years in advance of the assassination, and often... Perhaps in popular literature, it's seen that the assassin says, I want to, here's a target, I'll go kill him next weekend. Where in reality, professional operations such as this often take place over a period of years. And you can track the, the Trotsky assassination back to 1937 in the preparations that were done. And it started with, with the idea that, first of all, the Russian intelligence service had very little knowledge about Mexico City. So after Caridad Mercader, his mother, was trained in 37, she traveled to Mexico and, in effect, was treated, feted as a hero because she was this passionate, beautiful Spanish woman fighting for the ideals of communism, and she was feted by the Mexican Communist Party, and she established many contacts. When she went back, this was coincidental with the fact that Trotsky in January of 37 with his wife Natalia had moved to Mexico City and was living in the home of Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, the Blue House. And so this early intelligence gathering was necessary. 
the key point was that they decided they needed a way to get Mercader close to Trotsky. And Trotsky's entourage was vigilant but not prepared. They were aware of the threats but really didn't have the internal resources to, to do much about it other than just basic elementary security. So Russian intelligence under Eidington realized that to do it they needed to make an oblique approach. And how better than to do a false flag recruitment of a source close to the family? And they knew that there was a, a family in New York City, uh, an emigre, Russian emigre, by the name of Samuel Ageloff, and he had three daughters, who of which, two of which were passionate Trotskyites, one Ruth Ageloff and her sister Sylvia. And Ruth had been a secretary for Trotsky. And in the days before modern recording and transcription equipment, Trotsky didn't handwrite things. He would speak very eloquently, and he, the secretary literally would copy each word down. And Ruth Ageloff had been very effective in working as a secretary. She had a sister whose name appears in the Russian files under the code name of Old Maid, and her name was Sylvia. Very plain, not unattractive, but certainly not attractive and who had never had a passionate love affair. And they went through a, a third party by the name of Ruby Weil. And Ruby Weil was a recruited source for Russian intelligence in New York City. And Ruby befriended Sylvia. Ruby rented a, a two-room apartment, had disposable income. They began to party, spend time together. And suddenly she announced there had been a death in her family and she had come into a large inheritance. And what better than in the summer of 1938 that the two single women should go to Paris and there they could participate in the first international conference for the Fourth International, this new founding Trotsky movement of the Socialist Workers' Party. And they did. And on June the 29th, 1938, Ruby Weil, introduces the old maid, Sylvia Ageloff, to this dashing, athletic, very handsome, and single Jacques Mornard, who was Ramon Mercader under his Belgian cover. And he was a wonderful dancer, a conversationalist. He knew the best restaurants in Paris, had disposable income, and he courted her. Finally, 11 days later, the consulate, the, the residentura in Paris, had to remove Ruby because she was simply in the way of this burgeoning love affair. And he seduced her and began a very intimate and passionate love affair that essentially answered Sylvia's dreams. This is all she had ever heard hoped for. And with that in place, eventually, when she returned to New York City, he followed some weeks later using a false passport, interestingly, that had been taken from one of the dead Canadian volunteers that had fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. But the NKVD forgers misunderstood the English, American English, and very sloppily misspelled his name. And it, instead of Frank Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N, they spell it J-A-C-S-O-N. But he traveled to New York City under this false passport, 
when he's there, he said that he was going to open an import-export business in Mexico City and would soon be leaving. She said, how wonderful. My sister used to work for Trotsky. I'll go with you. I can serve the cause, and we can be together. And so it was this initial relationship that allowed the access. And in early January 1940, they arrived in Mexico City. Uh, she was serving as a secretary each day, and for the first six months, Mornard literally began to simply take her to work and pick her up each day. Let me uh, just uh, move ahead a little bit, and that is you've established how uh, Menard, or Mercadores, as uh, with his other name, has gotten into Trotsky's entourage. Um, as you and I are speaking, um, in in uh, in 2007, uh, we are aware of what appear to be a number of assassinations inside Russia, today's Russia, possibly ordered by the state, not entirely clear, and of Russians abroad. But in most of these cases, uh, the 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 assassin's hand, or is is concealed. And one of the remarkable things about the Trotsky assassination, even with this sort of um, very extensive preparation you've described uh, was done in a very crude fashion, for heaven's sake. You can certainly describe it uh, for our listeners. But my interest would be in not only how it was done, but why it was done in such a fashion and why the assassin's, nation, the assassin's hand uh, was made so clear. Well, interestingly... Uh, the Russians, the Soviets, were very aware of this. And what is often forgotten these days is that Mercader was not the primary assassin. Their initial attack, there were two lines of attack that were conceived by Eidingen. The first was codename Khan, and the second was codename Utka, or Duck. And Khan was actually to be an organized raid on this fortified Trotsky compound that was being led and organized by Mexico's second most famous muralist, David Alfero Siqueiros. And he, taking a, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, organized 20 other Spanish Civil War veterans. And on the night of May the 23rd, they had, unbeknownst to the public, recruited a source inside his camp. And the source had been recruited by the New York consulate. And his name was Robert Sheldon Hart, the son of a very wealthy financier on Wall Street. And he had come to Mexico City in March of 1940 to serve as a bodyguard. We now know for the first time his code name was Amur, A-M-U-R. And he was prepared to give access on a night that he had guard duty to this organized group of raiders. And early in the wee hours on the 24th, they came to the compound. Robert Sheldon Hart was alone on duty. He let them in. Twenty men armed with pistols, incendiary bombs, and Thompson submachine guns stormed the compound. Hart takes them to the bedroom and using three points of entry, there were two common doors leading into Trotsky's bedroom and one window, they fired more than 300 rounds into the bedroom and the bed, and they miss. Because they had, were operating under the delusion that the bedroom was booby-trapped, as if someone would booby-trap their bedroom 
and not have to go in the middle of the night to the lavatory, but they never went in. And because of the arcs of fire from the three points of entry into the room, Trotsky simply crawled into the corner. His wife, Natalia, threw herself on top of them, and neither of them suffered an injury. Only the grandson was Siva, was actually had a small injury. And they literally, the last man, the last assassin came around and fired another six bullets into the bed, thinking they're under the bed, and they left, and they took heart with them. And this was a bombshell in Mexico, but it was a complete and utter failure. Eitingen, General Eitingen, a codename Tom, we have his original message that he sent back to Stalin, in effect saying, I have suffered a horrible embarrassment. I'm ready to be recalled and suffer any punishment that you think is appropriate. But rather than being angry, Stalin saw that the, their political operation was so effective that they pointed the fact that this wasn't a real attack. Trotsky had actually staged it himself to get sympathy from the Mexican people because clearly, unless he was prepared, how could you fire 300 bullets into a room and not kill someone? So the Mexican police accused Trotsky of not even being in the room. And rather than being a disaster, it turned out to be a public relations success. Four days after the attack, Mercader, who had only been an ancillary role, he had dropped Sylvia Ageloff at the compound and picked her up each day, slowly ingratiating himself with familiarity with the guards. He volunteered. He and, her mo he and his mother went to New York City in June, late June of 1940, and it was there. The final plan was set, and they began literally what was probably the last seven weeks of Trotsky's life. I, I know we're we're pushing the envelope, and, and but I, I think we've we've got to we've got to bring this story to uh, to uh, the ending that everyone's familiar with, with your comments on it, um, and that's that's where I would ask you to if we could go now to to the actual assassination of Trotsky and anything relating to that in the aftermath. Uh, at approximately 5:20 in the afternoon, on. August the 20th, 1940. Mercader appears at the compound purportedly to meet his common-law wife, Sylvia, and they wanted to have a final toast to say farewell to Trotsky because they were leaving for New York City. Sylvia Ageloff knows nothing about this. It's the assassin. He had done a dry run one week before, and under the guise of coming there with an article for Trotsky to review, he knew that the guards had allowed he and Trotsky in his office alone. Now, it's hot, it's warm, but he's carrying a heavy raincoat and wearing a hat. And Natalia notices this and says, would you like some water? You don't look well. He says, well, yes, thank you. He follows Trotsky into his study. Trotsky sits at the desk. Mercader places his raincoat on a credenza behind the desk. And from it, he pulls a small pialette, or small ice climbing axe that had been shortened. Now, Mercader was an experienced ice climber, and he knew he had unique talents for handling this ice axe, and had once boasted that he could virtually break a block of granite if he could have the proper strike with this axe. And it was shortened to about one foot long. He had it suspended within his raincoat with a small piece of cord. Now, interestingly, this wasn't his only weapon. He had a dagger, approximately 13 inches long, and a star pistol in case. But his plan 
was to kill Trotsky quietly and outside waiting in two cars. His mother and a chauffeur were in one car and Idington was in another car. They had an escape route. As Trotsky sat down, the assassin comes up behind him with the Alpenstück and it, just as he's prepared for the blow, Trotsky startles and looks up slightly to the right. And at that point, it hit him. The lesion is approximately three quarters of an inch wide, two and three quarters of an inch deep. But amazingly, Trotsky doesn't die. He lets out this pathetic dying scream and then attacks the assassin, bites him deeply in the hand. The bodyguards come in, subdue Mercader, but Trotsky's mortally wounded. He goes to the hospital. He dies some 26 hours later. But Mornard never, ever admits who he is. In fact, he says, I'm a Trotskyite, but Trotsky wants me to, to assassinate Stalin, and I refuse to do that. I'll eliminate him instead. And he sticks with his story for the next 19 years and eight months of his sentence. And though at, at the time we can say it was sloppy, and there were some elements of it clearly that were unprofessional, the, the Utka line run by Eidingen and Karadad was far more professional than the first attack conned by Sikeros. And if you say, if you judge the operation by its ultimate success, though it was the crime of the century, Stalin had muddied the waters enough that they were just unsure. Number one, they didn't know who Mornard was. They were unsure of his political affiliation. And by the time they figured it out 10 years later, no one really cared. And, and Mercador, uh, after serving his sentence, at least 19 or so years of it, returned to Moscow where he was honored for his work. Is that right? He was feted as a hero of the Soviet Union and presented a solid gold watch under his operational name, Agent Lopez. And I'm very proud uh, that tonight here at the museum, we're going to be putting this on public display for the very first time, as well as a oil painting done by his mother, Karadad who, under the code name Mother, certainly challenges the traditional relationships of a mother who's proud of her son. Keith, this has been a fascinating story, and I think all the richer for the original research that you've done into it. And I really would like to invite you back to talk about one of your specialties, which is within the history of intelligence, the role of gadgetry and, and espionage, the, so many of the artifacts that you've managed to acquiring your collection. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum dot org. Thank you. Welcome again to the WRV 1090.26 Revengerous Morning News, Morning Radio, Morning Show, part of your week-long Zoo Crew ZooCast block of comedy morning hours. You're tuned in with me, The Bee, and over on Traffic and Weather, Dr. Nasty. Traffic and Weather on the 6, every 6 minutes. A resident Jolly Chad. <laughs> yes! <laughs> the Caco. The what? <laughs> Classic! <laughs> Over on the sound effects board, Dirk Lurkin. Wait, what? What did you call me? 
And here are the special guests in the studio today, local comedian and frivologist, Bobby Coffey. Hey guys, how's it going? How's it going? Really glad to have you. You can tell by the enthusiasm in my voice. People call up on the number that's on their phone. I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> How about we break right in with some news? <laughs> yes, classic. Let's do this. After all, it is a morning news show as well as a morning zoo crew radio. What the hell are you guys doing? You sound like idiots. Well, that's not a big change, but... This is our regular radio podcast zoo thing we do every morning. Come on, El Caco. Uh, Have you lost your marbles? The only idiots around here are those that are on the, on the I-95 today. That's right, Dr. Jesse. They're all on their way down to the state fair for some fried donuts. Fried no, donuts. <laughs> Classic. What about our regular program? The Revengerous. Yes, the Revengerous morning radio, morning news, morning show. Uh, what? Going on. We're taking some news here, brought to you by the new CBS Two show, The Queen Latifah Show. This week, Jada Pinkett Smith will be on there telling personal stories. But over in Kansas City, they built a 17-story tall water slide. That's the tallest in the world. And apparently, the first humans that started to take this water slide, you know what happened to them? <laughs> That's right. They were launched straight up into the air. So you, you're not going to be able to ride this for a while. They had to shut it down. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shut down. <laughs> so this thing is called the Verruck. Uh, it sounds like something from Oktoberfest. It's like a it's like a pale ale or something, right? Okay. Well, the, the Schlitterbahn Park uh, has allowed people to test it, but now they're closing it down. Test riders reportedly went airborne once they reached the bottom of the slide. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds a lot like what's happening today on the 10 today. Uh, it's turning into a water slide with all this rain that's coming in. Yeah, there, uh, hey, hey, Dr. Nasty, can you see uh, from the WRVE 1090.26 chopper, what's going on with that water slide? Oh, yeah, the beat. Looks like the eastbound ramp from the 15 to the 10 is seeing some congestion due to a, a truck that slid down the ramp due to the monsoon that came in earlier today. Reports say that the chickens all fell out of the truck and now they're all over the highway pecking people in the eyes. Sounds like those chickens ought to cross the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why do the chickens cross the road? In this case, they're not. <laughs> okay, this got to be like some sort of alien virus or something. This makes no sense whatsoever. So, Jolly Chad, <laughs> yeah. would, you, would you ride this crazy water slide or what, man? It sounds like no, sounds no, like pretty no, dangerous. No, not, sir. <laughs> no. <laughs> How about you, the Kako? Um, yeah. That's, that's, I agree full-heartedly with that Jolly Chad. <laughs> Something. If this thing is killing people, I mean, I I, I don't know what to what to do about it. We gotta we, we they might be right to shut it down, but it all sounds like a marketing scheme, and you know we're no stranger to those. Oh yeah, send in one dollar now, and you will receive our classic album of marketing schemes. Maybe it was the Kirsch. He's always fucking around with those mystical oddities. Maybe he did something in that book of his. Dirk Kirsch, he sounds like a swell fellow, but he's no Dirk lurking. I wish I could get more than this dumb radio show on my helicopter here. <laughs> you want to listen to the competitors, huh? Well, Dirk lurking, that sounds like some sort of uh, guy with a van driving around the high school. Ha ha ha, leave my weekends out of this. Oh boy. Well, 
Speaking of crazy weekends, authorities in Oregon, they say a woman was arrested for breaking into a house, pushing a woman down the stairs, pulling her hair, biting her on the face, and then telling the victim, I'm just playing the zombie game. Just play the zombie game, guys. Don't worry about it. I gotta get to the lab and fix this. But if you guys ever played this zombie game, sounds pretty crazy. The police, of course, think that she was on something. She was smoking something. I was on some bath salts once, and man, I did eat some faces. <laughs> Classic. Oh, yeah. Watch out what he's <laughs> lurking around. Let's hear from our guest here. What do you think of this zombie game that's sweeping the nation? Or do you think it's actual zombies? Zombie game is actually a lot of fun. I play it a lot of times at, like, family events. Oh, my God. The other day, I, like, tackled my four-year-old cousin down and just, like, ripped his fit right into his neck. It was a fun time with the family. It's a shame these people aren't in on the zombie game when they get attacked, or they could play along and say, bite me. <laughs> right? Like, he didn't know what was going on. All he was doing was yelling, Mommy, 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 kicking some screaming. You know, it's like, hey, dude, I'm playing the zombie game. Speaking of zombies, Walking Dead is going to now be on the WC every Saturday night. The local police sergeant said there's no definite explanation for that zombie reference. They don't know if it was the Walking Dead or George Romero or some sort of pop culture thing. I don't think the police know what zombies are, sounds like. He's a little confused. But because he, he also mentioned uh, being influenced by scarecrows in the area. I don't know anybody who's influenced by scarecrows except crows. <laughs> Maybe a trickster god. Hey, it's Dr. Nasty with Choo 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 Traffic and Weather on the 6 every 6 minutes. I'll tell you what, people out here at 9.47 a.m., they, they all look like a bunch of zombies to me. That's right. It's coming into work. You're looking around. You're wondering, is somebody going to bite me? This thunderstorm that's hitting down the, the, the 800 today on, on the northbound side is making everyone look pretty unhappy. They all got their, their dumb coffees, and they're going to work, and they're, they're saying that they hate their miserable lives that they live every day on the day. I do, I do. But I know that I know that chicken wreck is, is causing some more problems. The chickens are heading up I-645. I recommend not going up that side because the traffic is stopped and you might want to take the nearest off-ramp but go into downtown and, and head through Stopper Street and take the northbound to the 405. But some people are actual zombies and are getting out of their cars and eating people alive. And they're stuck right there. They're like sitting ducks. Chickens. <laughs> Chicken wreck sounds like a band. Isn't that right, Bobby Coffee? Yeah, I think I actually opened for them like two years ago. Ooh, that must have been rough. Is that what your career has brought you to? Uh oh! <laughs> oh yeah, I've, I've had to actually open for quite a few bands. I had to open for this one hardcore band who, uh, halfway through my set, came out and slammed me through a folding uh, table. That was that was my my closer for about two weeks. Are you sure you wasn't it wasn't a professional wrestler? It sounds like oh, the cocktail. Yeah. Right uh, the lead singer was this you know uh, ex uh, pro wrestler kind of guy, and yeah, halfway through my set, they didn't enjoy me, so they. Putting right through the fucking table. Hardcore band, sounds like you got a problem there. Alright, I finally reached the lab. Bunsen burner, weird concoction. What, what's the hell's this? Inflammable. Oh, that's good, that won't catch fire then. Great. Well, that reminds me of a, of a hardcore band called the Bad Luck 13 Riot Extravaganza. Every time they play, they cause a riot. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Speaking of riots, 
this show is a riot here on WB. And here's a, another news story. Police allege that a man on Wednesday morning learned that his 49-year-old roommate ate his three Chips Ahoy cookies. Three cookies! Oh, the no. victim said that she was in the bathroom getting dressed when he pounded on the door and then threatened to kill her. That's right. Go ahead and kill me, she said. He, she was just joking. But then he grabbed her and tried to kill her. And the, the landlord and the husband and all these other people ultimately pulled him apart. But he was literally going to kill somebody over three cookies. You better not touch my cookies, <laughs> B. <laughs> Years ago when I lived in like the more like run-down area of my hometown, uh, there was uh, next-door neighbors. They were A big fight broke out in the house, and it led into the streets where each – it was a father and a son, and they both had two-by-fours, and they were going to each other's cars with them. And then afterwards and everything, the word got out in the neighborhood of what the fight was all about, and it was, literally was that the son had eaten the last slice of pizza. Yeah, cold pizza sounds like you got a problem there. Grabbing cookies sounds kind of like a euphemism to me. <laughs> Classic. Of course I grab myself every night and take my antidepressants. Oh boy. I think everybody who's listening to this show is going to toss okay. their Oh cookies. god! I'm on fire! I'm on fire! Guys, pour me out! Pour me out! I'll stop! I'll drop! I'll roll! I'll stop! I'll drop! I'll roll! This just in breaking news. Apparently there's a five alarm fire right here in the studio. And uh, looks like looks like the cocko's uh, rolling around. Do stop and drop and rolling. That's the right thing to do there, using your ninja powers. Shut the fuck up and help me! I poured my thermos on him, but the liquor in there just seems to have stoked the flames. <laughs> Not it. It's five o'clock uh, Dr. Nasty here with traffic and weather. Yeah, you might want to walk outside because we got we got hurricane weather incoming uh, from the west here. Well, that'll put out that fire and any other fires in the region. Isn't that right, Dr. Nasty? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, yeah, westbound hurricane here in the uh, the tri-coast area. So what do you so what do you prescribe then, doctor? Well, there, there there's a lot of congestion everywhere. You might want to avoid going eastbound on the 645. You want to get off and. Go through downtown east toward the 645 and take the, the north exit to the 285. It's always a good idea to cut through downtown during the middle of rush hour traffic. We got people sitting in their cars wondering if they're ever going to reach their soul-crushing work. Congestion seems to be getting, not be getting any better on the I-95 as the chickens from the chicken wreck and the zombies are, are now fighting a, a war right in front of everyone. Oh, those poor civilians caught in the middle. Those chickens are just pecking the shit out of those zombies, and the zombies are eating the chickens, and the, the people stuck in their in their vehicles, and even in the uh, the HOV line are are stuck in the middle, getting their windows wrecked in this rain and this hurricane. More like a fury. Oh yeah. Looks like you finally got those flames out there, buddy. But I told you in the studio, no smoking. <laughs> Classic. I hate you so much right now. Too late. What's behind this door? What do you think? This is some kind of game show. It's going behind door number three, you guys. It's probably going to fight a goat. I don't even know what we put behind these doors. <laughs> Dark Lurkin, is that your goat? You always seem to outdo yourself in that perversion department. Oh, no. She's not my type. <laughs> I like a fuller-figured goat. Dirk, why don't you update the people on our running contest that's been going on for a few years with no winners? What's uh, what what can they do to enter? Well, B, 
Entry's simple. All you have to do is send $1,000 in a self-addressed stamped envelope. Then, if your $1,000 bill's serial number matches the serial number on ours, you win the grand prize. But, if you lose, it goes back into the jackpot. That's right. We have over 30 bajillion dollars in storage for one lucky winner. If your serial number matches any of ours, you win. Now remember, our agents are roaming about the town looking for the lucky person with a secret number code to get those tickets for this weekend. And if they catch you breathing, you will be disqualified. So at all times, expect anyone to come up and check and make sure you're not breathing. And uh, despite me not giving out the phone number earlier, we actually have a caller, so... Uh, go ahead, caller. What's your damage? Hey, um, this, this is WRVE 1090.26, Preventress Morning News, Morning Radio, Morning Show, Part 2. The continuing. Yeah, I called about the, the contest. Oh, yeah. Jerk Zeal out in the contest. I don't know if we would take, uh, take him this way. Sure, why don't we just, uh, put you on? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, caller? Yeah, I'm my my name's uh John Seaman. Caller, caller, turn your radio turn down. down. Your radio. Turn your radio down. Turn your radio down. Is down? Sasquatch! Help! Is he wrestling a yeti? Looks like the Gakko found himself in some mortal danger. Mortal oh, danger? Sounds like you've got a problem. Oh, that looks like Jesse the Intern in a Chewbacca costume. <laughs> I guess he chose the wrong door. Whoa. Is the Gakko gonna be okay? I don't know. Who cares? Listen, caller, uh, I don't think you can enter the contest this way. Did you have a question for our resident panel of expert rogues? Yeah, um, I, I always wanted to call in and talk to you guys. Uh, I listen to you every day on the way to work here on the I-95. And, uh, yeah, like, the, the B, how long have you been in this? Uh, about 28 minutes. And listen, listen, kid, uh, I, so what I'm getting is you really respect us and look up and idolize us, right? Yeah, yeah. And you um, probably do anything for our approval over the radio, right? I, I, I guess. And all your friends and, and family are listening right now? Yeah, they, they, they all listen They all listen to the morning show, too. Too bad you're a wingus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's blow them up. The, ah, the, yeah! No, no, I, I, I've got a family. More like John Crater. Now. Hey, it's Dr. Nasty with Traffic and Weather. On the six, every six minutes. Seems things are getting worse. We got a we, we got a car explosion here on the the I ninety five uh, southbound in the downtown. Where the chicken and the zombie fight seems to have uh, accumulated in size and culminated on the four hundred five here. But uh, it seems like that doesn't matter anymore because the the earth has opened up and a contingent of lava men has crawled out of the maw of the earth and has 
started killing everything. So expect congestion on uh, every freeway, even the 800 westbound in the downtown. So if you're trying to get to work today at 6.45 a.m., I would, I would avoid the, the freeways completely. You might want to take the turnpike on the canyon here, but even that seems like a wash today. And expect to get, well, bring your umbrella because you're going to get washed through this typhoon. But, but I'll tell you what, even worse is uh, next week into my, and I particularly do not like this thing. Weather pattern of the week. Well, Dr. Nasty's weather pattern of the it sounds like things are getting kind of hot out there. Yeah, we got a flame wall coming in in, a, in about three days here, according to the uh, the weather nader. Is that Ralph Nader uh, become a meteorologist? Whoa, 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 whoa. But every day is looking, looking relatively warm and overcast, but we got these fucking cumulonimbus clouds coming in on Thursday. Cumulonimbus. <laughs> So what you're saying is they should get away for the weekend if they can even get through that horrible traffic. Get out of here. Go somewhere tropical and beautiful. Where are there no uh, cumulonimbus clouds? <laughs> I fucking hate cumulonimbus clouds. <laughs> You know, if you don't stop, I'm just gonna punch you in the goddamn face. <laughs> and that's the weather report with Dr. Nasty and traffic and weather. Every six minutes on the third minute. Hmm. Seems to be a puddle. Let me check this water to find any clues. Hmm. It is wet. Upon further investigation, not only is it wet, but this certainly isn't water. <laughs> well, speaking of tropical place, let's take them down south of the borderway to a beautiful Aruba. <gasps> Sounds like a place that only rubes go. Get you out the dog for no reason. Get a hot dog. Get an Aruba. Yes, I think that I would enjoy a hot dog. That sure does look big. They're big and juicy and red. Yeah? They've been speeding all day with no one to put them in the mouth. They got so sweaty. Can I put your sweaty hot dog in my mouth? Oh, the meat of the hot dog. It's a bursting out of the casing. Eh? That sure does look like a fine dog. It's nice and meaty and thick. Oh, God, that's worse than listening to NPR. You would have tried to eat the whole hot dog at once. What's the matter for you, huh? <laughs> Don't you know that's a, a foot long? Whoa! I don't know if hot dogs this far. I'm not sure if this is quite a foot long or not. It's not about the size. Wouldn't you rather have it between two buns? The size sounds like you got a problem. I just enjoy the meat sometimes. Just dip it in mayonnaise? I know it sounds a little weird. Just the hot dog and mayonnaise. Well, 
Monica Lewinsky. You got a mayonnaise all over your jacket. Oh, oh it's, so, it's so messy and a sloppy. Aruba. Go to Aruba. Well, nothing there. Hey, now that wasn't part of this. That wasn't part of this guy. Did Jerk Lurkin? That wasn't the right sound effect to play. I don't know what I'm doing. I have a high school education and crippling alcoholism. Uh oh, well, there's actual broken glass. That's quite an effect for your your sound effects board there. I am bleeding. Blood sounds like you have a problem. Now our incredibly topical and hilarious sketch about Monica Lewinsky has been ruined. Thanks a lot, there, El Caco. What are you doing there, anyways? Try to make this end. I will find a way to save you guys. I'm not leaving you like this. I would leave wherever you are right now. Every six on the three minutes, except for leap minutes. It seems like things are starting to, to clear up here. Uh, it's about two in the afternoon. It's mid-afternoon rush hour time. Uh, I-95 is clearing up. We got the 800. It's also clearing up. The, uh, the lava zombies have, have successfully cleaned up the chicken and zombie fights uh, and a few cars. Wait, did the lava, the lava men become lava zombies? Were they bitten by the zombies? I don't know what happened. They just At one point, they just stood there and uh, enchanted, and then they just melted into the earth, and the maw closed up. Hey, stop talking about my maw. But it was, it was strange because for a minute there, uh, the, the flame wall passed through and a uh, horrible fire started and people burned to death. But then a bunch of men in dark cloaks came along and started doing a bunch of stuff. I didn't ask. But are you safe from all of